You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. So, um, growing up, I was not much of a reader as a kid. Um, not because I didn't know how, but because I would much rather play outside. I was a scatterbrained extrovert, and so I was much more interested in playing um, cowboys outside than I was in reading books inside, and on rainy days, my mom would tell me to read a book, and I would look at a book for a while until I found a way, like thought of a plan to escape, to go play outside in the rain, because that's even more fun. Um, and so, so I never, as a kid, or, or really even in high school, understood uh, the beauty or the power of, of literature and symbolism until I was in college taking my senior seminar class, um, and, and at UT, if you're in liberal arts, you have a senior seminar class. And so I, I was a religious studies major in my senior seminar class where I would essentially write my thesis, which was called Religion in the American South. And in this class, we read a novel called The Violent Barrett Away by Flannery O'Connor. And, and for the first time ever, I experienced literature as something powerful because because it was so much more than just the characters in the book or, or the story being told. With this novel, Miss O'Connor pointed out uh, observations that were so deep and impactful about Southern culture and, and the, the interminglings of religious beliefs and secular beliefs in Southern culture and her experiences as a young Catholic growing up in the South. And, and I was just moved by this book because it was so powerful, because it was so much more than just the story at home. And I say that because today we're going to be in a narrative text. And, and, and we, can, we can have a temptation to reduce it to just a historical account of something Jesus did. But, but I want you to, to in, engage with and think about the idea that, that the God of the universe did not just have Jesus partake in the washing of the disciples' feet for the sake of washing the disciples' feet but to teach us something so much more and point to something so much bigger. And, and so as we read the text this morning, that's the mindset that we need to have. And so before we get into chapter 13, uh, I think it's important to, to see where we are up to the point of chapter 13 in John. We've been going through John, and, and previously we were in the church season of Epiphany, in which we got to experience, through the Gospel of John, a revelation of who Jesus is as a person. And here are ways that he's been revealed in John's circle. He's been revealed as a powerful prophet and a miraculous healer. We saw that as he turned um, water into wine at the wedding at Cana. We saw it as he healed the official son of illness, as he healed the crippled man by the pool, as he fed the, fed the 5,000 with just a smack, as he walked on water to meet his disciples in a boat, as he healed a blind man, and as he raised his dead friend Lazarus back to life. So we've seen Jesus as, as a powerful prophet and as this miraculous worker of miracles and healing. We've seen him as an authoritative teacher. As he's had these statements throughout the Gospel of John, the, the I am statement, in which he claims to be something so important that, that really all of eternity hinges on him. He said things like, I am the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the door of the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. And I'm the resurrection and the life. 
We've seen him as an authoritative teacher when the Jewish teacher of the law, Nicodemus, came to him in chapter 3 and asked him what it, what it means to have eternal life and how that was obtained. And then Jesus pointed to himself. And he said, God so loved the world that if you believe in his son, you will have eternal life. We've seen him revealed as divine and as king. Divine meaning that in John chapter 1, starting the gospel, John says that Jesus is the word, the very expression, the very representation, the, the very nature of God represented in the flesh. And that not only is he a representation of God in the flesh, but he is God in the flesh. And we've seen him revealed as king most recently in chapter 12 as he makes his entry into Jerusalem to start the week of Passover and the multitudes come around him and are hailing him as king of Israel, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then he goes on after this event and says that the time has come for him to be glorified as king. And he, and he tells that he's come to save the world and that he's going to ascend into the heavenly places. And so with all of this being said about Jesus, we're right to think of him as a figure of great renown, a person worthy of worship. He is, after all, the powerful prophet, the authoritative teacher, the miraculous healer, the divine king, the only son of God. And as we read the first few verses of chapter 13, that view of Jesus isn't going to change. In fact, it'll be bolstered. Verses 1 through 3 say, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. So we see Jesus, the Lord of all, sitting at supper with his disciples, and we see his omniscience revealed. His knowledge of all things. He knows what's going to take place in the coming days. He knows that his hour had come. This hour that he said had not yet come multiple times throughout the gospel. But that it had come. He says that, it says that he knew that he had come from God. That, meaning that he formerly resided in the heavenly places with God for eternity past. And that he was going back to do that for eternity future. It says that he knew that even one of his own was going to betray him. He had knowledge of this. And he knew that all of creation was given to him by the Father for him to be king and ruler over. So then he stands up from supper, and I expect a rousing speech. From a figure of this renown, I expect a rousing speech or clear commandment. Or maybe a rally for support from his disciples as he enters into his hour of glory. But that's not all what happened. That's, that's not even close to what happened. What we see is, Jesus sacrifices this kingly status for servanthood. Let's read verses 4 through 11. It says, He rose from supper, and he laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, and tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, 
What I am doing, you do not understand now. But afterward, you will understand. Underline that. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Underline that. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that's why he, why he said, not all of you are clean. So, so we, in the 21st century, can look at what just happened, where Jesus, who has been revealed in this text to be this powerful figure of great renown, we can see that what happened is a bit odd a bit out of place for him to kneel down and wash the feet of those who should be at his feet worshiping. But it was, must have been much more odd for the disciples in the first century. Because the cultural significance of foot washing was great. It was a common practice. If you can imagine living in first century Palestine or Israel walking around in sandals to your destination, you would imagine that even if you were bathed, your feet would become very dirty. And so it was very common for a host to arrange for a basin of water to be available to the guests that they could wash their feet um, upon arrival. And even in special circumstances, there would be a, a slave to perform that task for guests. Guests of honor. But in Jewish culture, we can know this. This is what the theologian Kostenberger says. He says, The washing of feet, however, was considered too demeaning for disciples of a rabbi, or even for a Jewish slave, and thus it was assigned to non-Jewish slaves. And this is the only historical testimony that we have in all of Greco-Roman literature that points to a superior washing the feet of inferior. And so the cultural significance of what's taking place is huge. Jesus, the rabbi, the teacher, the one who the disciples refer to as Lord and God, has sacrificed this status to do something that, that none of them would dare dream of even asking a Jewish person to do. The king of the Jews has submitted himself to the role of washing the feet as a non-Jewish slave. And so when we get to the dialogue between Simon, Peter, and Jesus, we shouldn't be surprised. I think reading the Gospels, we have a tendency to judge Simon Peter as one who always puts his foot in his mouth or always is being rebellious towards Jesus. But I really don't think that's his intention. He's put off by this. He's confused. He says, Lord, you wash my feet? And then Jesus said, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. The question we have to ask and hope we get an answer to is after what? At what time will Simon Peter understand? When will it be revealed why it is at all acceptable for this king, teacher, and ruler to, to do the work of a slave? When will that be revealed? What we see here is historical foreshadowing. In a similar way to when you might read a book or watch a movie 
and, and something will happen, an event will take place, or maybe, or maybe like you're watching a corny TV show and somebody says something and the camera zooms in and like really obvious music plays showing that something later is going to happen. Like that's what's happening here. Jesus is saying, there's something that's going to happen that's going to make you understand. And so we need to hope that we find out what it is. He also goes on in the conversation with Peter to say, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. First of all, we need to ask, what does it mean to have a share with Jesus? To have a share with Jesus is of eternal significance. Because it means that that one belongs to Jesus, that they've been washed, accepted, and cleaned by Jesus, and that they're a stakeholder with Jesus in his eternal heavenly kingdom. And so to have a share with Jesus is really priority number one for a human. But we go on and and we're going to find out that, that the foot washing that was taking place, it wasn't the washing that Jesus was talking about. When he said, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Because any logical reading of this account would suggest that Jesus washed the feet of all 12 disciples, including Judas, the betrayer. Jesus washed the feet of his enemy, Judas, who would betray him. Judas, who did not believe that Jesus was the Christ, the only Son of God. So it would be right for us to assume that this can't be the washing that Jesus is referring to. Especially when he goes on to say that not all of the disciples are clean. He says, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And so so if there's a future event that's going to shed light on what's taking place here, and there's a, a certain way in which we as humans need to be washed by Jesus in order to have a share with Him. But it, it's not this foot washing that's taking place that we would, might think it would be. Well, first of all, we have to recognize that, that if that's not the washing Jesus is talking about, that's good news for us because He's not here in the flesh to wash our feet. Which means there may be hope for us to actually have a share with Jesus. That this isn't just something for the twelve in the room. But, but we need to look and hope that we find an answer. What is going to shed light on this experience? And what does it mean to have a share with Jesus and to wash them? So Jesus sacrifices his kingly status to do the work of a non-Jewish slave. And then what does he do? Well, he resumes his place at the table as the authority, as the teacher. And he begins to teach and offer commandments. Verses 12 through 20 says, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. 
I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel again. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So Jesus commands his disciples to do as he has done. He commands them to, to wash each other's feet. And he says that he's given them an example and that they should do just as he has done. Well, outside of the physical act of just washing their feet, what has he done? What has Jesus done? Well, first and foremost, he served all of those that were in the room, including his enemies. His sacrificing of his role of honor and dignity and glory was not only for those who believed that he deserved honor, dignity, and glory, but for those who hated him. And he tells us to do likewise. And he says that if we do this, we'll be blessed. If we do this, we'll be blessed. And, and what Jesus is not promising is that if we get some water and we go around washing people's feet, that we're going to be wealthy, healthy, and happy for the rest of our lives. What he's saying is that if we are faithful to do as he has done, that we'll be blessed because we have a share with Jesus. We'll be blessed because we get to participate in the joy of service of the kingdom. We'll be blessed because we get to participate in the joy of having been cleansed and adopted and loved by the God of all things. That's what it means to be blessed. And Jesus doesn't skirt around the issue that, that we mentioned before that he washed all 12 disciples' feet, even the one who is not the true disciple. He didn't skirt around. He says he knows who he has chosen. And he, and he says he knows that this has taken place, that prophecies about him would be fulfilled. Meaning that this was not an accident. It doesn't negate the commission of the disciples that Judas was there and received the washing as well. It doesn't make it less significant for the disciples. In fact, it makes it more significant. It makes it so significant because the God of the universe in eternity past decided that Jesus would be betrayed by a disciple, but that he would also serve that disciple as one who loved him. That, that it would be a, an un... just an a boundless love. A love that was not based upon one's affections for him, but his affections for them. And so what does all this mean? If I, if I said earlier, and I, I made the, the, the mention of, of reading fiction, and, and for the first time realizing that a story could be so much more than what I initially thought it was, and I said that I'm convinced that this is an account in which there's so much more going on than I thought there was. And really, Jesus says that because he says, you're going to understand later. Then, then what is it? Well, great fiction writers have a way of using narrative and characters and plot and descriptive language in a, in a way that they can say something so much more than the story on its own could ever say. 
we can see clearly in this text that Jesus is doing that with his life and the narrative structure of it to paint an important picture about the nature of all things. About it, what it means to have a share with him. Church, he didn't wash the disciples' feet because they had dirt on their feet. He didn't, he didn't wash their feet just to be a countercultural rabbi so that people would talk about how wacky he was and doing this thing that a non Jewish slave would do. But he told Peter that there would be an event that would shed light on him. So what was he porting for? Well, first, let's look at what we've seen in the narrative. What we see is that a man that is heralded as the king of the Jews, as the God of the universe, as a worker of miracles, and one who teaches authoritatively, we see him sacrificing all of his own status, all of his renown, all of his glory, to take up the role and the garments of the slave. In this role, he sits at the feet of the humans that he created and washed their filth from them. And then he tells them that they must be washed by him in order to take part in his kingdom and to have a share with him. And then he pronounces that they are clean. And then he puts back on his, his garments that he wore before. And he returns to his place at the table as their authority. What's happening is Jesus is painting a picture of what will happen in the days to come. As he is betrayed, arrested, and hung upon a Roman cross, which is a typical execution for rebellious slaves. On this cross, he will sacrifice his divine glory and take upon the filth and the garment of the world's sin. His blood will flow down, and by it will people be cleansed and truly have a share with him. He will be humiliated far worse than he was humiliated at the feet of the disciples in the dining room. He will be stripped and mocked in far more unpleasant ways than just removing his outer garments of his own accord at, for the task of feet washing. And then he'll die the king of the Jews, the God of the universe, the powerful prophet, the miraculous healer, the authoritative teacher, the only son of the God Most High. He will trade in all of those names that are rightly his for the names of many, all of whom are slaves to sin and to unrighteousness. And he'll experience the shameful death that they or that we earn. He would be punished by man, but also by God for the sins of man. He would die. But three days later, he would rise up from the grave. And then he would resume his place and put back upon his garment as heavenly king as he takes, takes place at his seat of authority in the kingdom of heaven. That's what John 13 is about. It's not about dirt coming off of Tony. Going back to the text, we can see that Jesus was not referring to foot washing or even their regular baths 
that made the disciples clean and granted them a share with him in his kingdom. Rather, his blood would make them clean. And their faith in him would give them the rebirth that he had told Nicodemus he so desperately needed in chapter 2. They would be made completely clean by his sacrificial blood, and they will routinely have their spiritual feet clean in regular confession, repentance, and assurance of pardon. We've discussed really throughout this whole series that the Gospel of John was written with very specific intent. In chapter 20, verse 31, John writes, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. When Jesus told the disciples that they were clean, it was because he washed them and they responded in belief that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and they experienced life in his name. And when he said, do you understand what I have done to you? He wasn't talking about what he had done to them and washing their feet. He was talking about what he had done to them in eternity past when he decided he would be humiliated in death and the experiencing of wrath, that they might experience the joy and the glory of forgiveness and acceptance. That's what he was talking about. And, and so likewise, I would invite you with excitement to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, he said that he's done all of these things so that we would believe it. He built up for the first 12 chapters in John his renown and his glory and his status that we would be so taken back when he sacrificed it all to wash his feet. How much more will we be taken back when we read about his betrayal, arrest, death, and burial that we deserve? I would invite you to believe that he is the Son of God. I would invite you to do that and receive with joy the cleansing He has provided with His death in your place. And then, as Jesus washed you, go and serve others as a result. When Jesus calls His disciples to do as He has done, He's not just telling His disciples to go and wash other people's feet. Although that may be an excellent way to serve other people. If you're a believer in the room, You've been made clean, and you have a share with you. This means that you're a stakeholder and a family member in the kingdom of God. This means that one day you will be made glorious in the same way that Jesus is glorious at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places today. But, even though He had that status and has given us His status, he sacrificed that status and made himself love. That in humility and service, the love of God would be made known and available to the world. Christian, make yourself love in this life. Make yourself low in this life. I'm not telling you that you need to quit your job or you need to drop out of school or, or sell your car or, or live a life in obscurity and poverty. But I am telling you that you can sacrifice your comfort to make God's love known to people around you. You can sacrifice your sleep, your time, your energy, and your money for the sake of kingdom work and sacrificial love. 
You can sacrifice career advancement and educational opportunities for the sake of committing to a geographical neighborhood where people desperately need you to partner with the local church. For you, Christian, future glory, status, and honor is promised, and you'll get to experience it for eternity. But in the temporary, we must make ourselves low for the purpose. Philippians 2, 5-11 through 11 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Which, by the way, all things are ours in Christ Jesus. Praise God. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at that name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is our impetus as the church. That we would take that mindset that Jesus took in our lives now. That other people would experience God in such a way that they would confess and believe that He is the Christ, the Son of God, and that they would experience life in His name. Practical ways in which this can be played out here at Sojourn include these. Um, For one, as as a parish leader, I can tell you that if you are a parishioner, a great way that you can make yourself low and serve is that you would stop looking at the person that's been coming around for a while with Susie as Susie's friend, and you would look at that person as your friend. And you would take that person to dinner and get their phone number and invest in their life and make yourself low in that person's life that Jesus might be made much of. You can make financial sacrifices. You can cut your budget so that you might give more for the work of gospel. You might give more for this church here and for future churches that we will plant. Or you can make financial sacrifices just so your friends who can't pay their bills can pay their bills. In humility, today on Valentine's Day, Make yourself low and serve your spouse. Serve them in a way that is not only romantic, but in a way that is eternally romantic, that they would experience that the truth is that they are clean because of what Jesus has done for them. And they are fully loved, cared for, accepted, and the God of the universe delights and rejoices over them, even when you don't ever time. Even when you fail to do that ever time. You're not married, you can... You can do that in similar ways with your friends, with your family, with your parents. Make yourself low that people would continually be reminded of the goodness of God. And finally, realize that none of this is optional if you're a believer. For the believer, evangelism is not optional. It's not a question of whether you have enough time, whether you feel gifted in it, whether you feel prepared and equipped for it. You have been called by God and equipped by the Spirit for the work of making Jesus known, and you don't have a choice in the matter. 
other than obedience or disobedience. It's not a matter of gifting or not gifting. You may not have the most eloquent words, but what you can attest to is that at one point, your feet and your life were very filthy, but the God of the universe humbled himself and washed them clean so that you could experience a share. What you can do is testify that formerly you were a slave to sin and death, and through Jesus' submission to slavery, sin, and death, and through his resurrection, you've experienced life in his name. You can sacrificially serve people around you that they would feel special, not just by you, but by the God of the universe. But, but no believer that, that this isn't just about us serving, that people would find our service pleasant. Verse 20 says, Truly I say to you, whoever receives the one I send, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. So, so when you submit yourself and your life to making yourself low, for sacrificing status, glory, and honor for the sake of Jesus, when that service and those words are received by people and they believe in that, it is not that they are believing in you or us as a church, but they are believing that Jesus is the Son of God, that He's the Christ, and they're having life in His name. And it believes that they're believing in Him, but also in the God the Father who sent them, sent Him, and God the Spirit who empowered Him. And, and so... So we should go and serve the world in word and deed that they would receive our love and service and in that truly receive, believe, and proclaim that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And we should pray that many would do that because in so doing, they will have a share with Jesus and they will have life in His name. And not just now, but for for all of eternity. In a few moments, we're going to celebrate communion. And as we celebrate communion, um, I think this text teaches us a lot about Because Jesus says to the disciples, and you are clean. But he says, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. And so Jesus is telling the disciples that, that based on his merit, his blood, his life, death, and resurrection, the disciples are clean but also acknowledging that regularly their feet will be dirty and will need to be cleansed. And Jesus is pointing here toward the regular and, and the obvious thing that is, as Christians, we haven't, we haven't just conquered all sin in our life. Jesus has conquered all sin in our life, but we haven't overcome it. And regularly, we will need to confess, repent, and believe the gospel. But what we can do with that filth and that shame is we can put it at our feet and trust that we have a Savior who is good to wash us. And, and so, so as we approach communion, would, would we confess, repent, and believe and then come experience the supper with joyful hearts? Dr. John Piper preached this text far more eloquently than I ever could. And in it he said, Representatives of Jesus, that is Christian, then and today, should go low in humility and service. Not only because Jesus did, and not only because it is the most 
deeply joyful way to live, but also because they are completely clean. Representatives of Jesus know their true, unshakable standing with God as completely clean. And they don't claim that they have no sin. But they do know how to deal with their ongoing They confess their sin and receive daily cleansing. When Jesus offers to wash their feet, they say yes. They say, I know I am clean. I am born again. I am saved. I am justified. I have eternal life. I am a child of God, but I have sinned, and I receive the foot washing, the renewed cleansing. So for some of you today, I invite you, to receive the washing and the cleansing of Jesus for the first time. I invite you to consider what it would look like to believe and confess Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. Knowing that He was humiliated and suffered in your stead, that you might have a share. And that upon His merit, you would be clean. And for some of you, for some of us, we just need to confess that that we need help today because of what happened yesterday. That we need forgiveness and assurance of pardon. That we need to be reminded that we're clean and that we have a share with Jesus because our actions don't always look like people who do. And so let us spend this Lenten season as we approach the celebration of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection on Easter weekend. Let us treat this season with a contrite heart of repentance of confession, of worship, of prayer and fasting, ultimately that we would be assured of our pardon as we celebrate the resurrection. And so as we're called and cleaned by Jesus, by His sacrificial love, let us also go and do as He has